podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast in association with Charles Tirrett. If you're in the UK, you'll know exactly how cold it's been over the past few days. It was minus six degrees when I left my house this morning. Our friends at Charles Tirrett are offering our listeners a special 20% off their collection. So if you fancy adding to your winter wardrobe, why not head online to charlestirrett.com and use the promotional code WISDOM22 and get 20% off their whole range. That includes shirts, polos, chinos, knitwear and outerwear. Anyway, on with the show. We've got loads to get through today. We'll be celebrating a decade of Joe Root as an England player, 20 years of Jimmy Anderson as an international cricketer. We'll be talking about Azim Rafiq and Jaheed Ahmed's appearance at the DCMS committee hearing earlier in the week. There'll be a bit on the final Pakistan-England test match, England in the West Indies, Australia's test summer, Bangladesh-India, your questions and more. I'm Yaz Rana and with me today is Katia Whitney. Phil Walker, and back for the first time in absolutely ages, Joe Harmon. Good to have you back, Joe. We've had quite a few questions just concerned about your well-being. That's very nice as well. <laughs> I saw them coming through. I'm absolutely fine. Good. Never been better. Uh, raring to go. Have I missed much? Yeah, just a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Just a little bit. Um, I'm sure you've been listening every week. Of course. Um, <laughs> Love conquers all, yes. <laughs> so this week, as I said in the intro, marks 10 years of Joe Root as an England player, and more ridiculously, 20 years since Jimmy Anderson first played for England in an ODI at the MCG. We've probably spent about half of this podcast history struggling to find new ways of basically saying Joe Root's good, Jimmy Anderson's good. Uh, So we're going to try something a little bit different this week. We've all come up with our two favourite Root innings and two favourite Anderson spells each to mark the milestones. Um, Joe, do you want to go first? And worth saying as well that the milestone is also celebrated in the new magazine that comes out this week. Yeah, Phil spoke to um, Joe Root just before he headed out to Pakistan for the Test Series, reflecting on his decade as a Test cricketer. This pod is going to make me feel very, very old. I think that's what I'm realising as you you lined up there. Um, It's a really... Great interview that Phil's got with him. Uh, he's he's first time I've heard that. Have you been talking about it quite a lot? Uh, from you, darling, from you. Oh. First time I've heard anything from you one way or the other on it. But, you know, we're all under pressure. We were busy, weren't we? Had we were busy. Had deadlines to <laughs> Hugely me. busy. Nice to hear anyway, thanks. And he, yeah, he he's, sounds nice, as rela- nice and relaxed as, as you'd expect him to be after the, the, the few months that England have had. Tells some nice stories along the way, looking right back to his first Ashes tour when he's given an extra large suit in Chris Tremlett's size and he's struggling his way through the airport, kind of swimming in this massive suit. Compares himself to Chandler out of Friends. <laughs> <laughs> With his sleeves rolled up. Uh, and then quite a lot of um, kind of technical detail on his batting and some interesting stuff on on his captaincy and the struggles that he had at the end there as well. So definitely worth checking out. That's, that's out today, Thursday. Um, it's a long one. It I is a long one. Four and a half thousand, four thousand something words. Yeah, it's a long one. But it didn't feel like a long one. So that's, oh, that's, that's, that's it just good. gets better and better. Anyway, do you want my innings? Is that yes, I do. I do. Okay. Um, so I've got two. They're both, I suppose they're both relatively recent in the, in the second five years of the decade. Uh, the first I've gone for is Lords v South Africa in 2017, which was Root's first test match as, as captain. Uh, got 190, uh, strike rate of 80, and a game that no one else got a ton, and England won quite comfortably. Uh, against a really strong South African attack, Morkel, Philander, Rabada. Um, I guess there were always going to be question marks of how Root would adapt to the captaincy, whether he could continue to maintain his batting form. 
And that was the first example of the fact that he absolutely could. And I picked it, I mean, it's a brilliant innings in its own right, but I picked it particularly because it shows how brilliant Root was as a batsman while, whilst captain. And uh, particularly in the later years when there was so much other stuff on his plate, it's an incredible sporting achievement really to have continued doing um, what he did with all the other pressures on. He averaged 46 as, as captain, 1400s across nearly five years. Um, yeah, it's just a, st- a stunning record. Michael Vaughan always talked about having two hats as England captain, having your captaincy hat and your batter's hat and keeping them as separate as possible. And actually Vaughan struggled with that. Vaughan's record as, as captain as a batter was significantly worse than, than when he was playing just as a, as a specialist batter. Root did it brilliantly. Um, Cook kind of has a similar record as captain, but didn't really have to deal with a lot of the challenges that, that Root did, certainly off the field stuff. Just on that, and, and that particular element of of his story, after that 190, I think he made 100 against India, didn't he, in Cook's valedictory game here at the Oval. Yeah, got got a little bit lost along the, the way. Yeah, but yeah, after. But then after that, he did struggle a bit, right, as skipper at home, didn't he, in 2019 yeah. and 2020. I don't think he made... Average sort of 30, something over three yeah, home Yeah, high, high 30s, uh, then without... He's got a massive 100 in New Zealand... But other than that, was actually pretty quiet for a couple yeah. of years. Well, that was that was the moments where he was getting lots of half centuries and couldn't get through to three figures, which is actually really interesting on in, in the interview with with Phil as well. Um, so yeah, there were there were blips along the way, but to 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 be captain for that long and have that record, I think is is to, massively to his to his credit as much for his um, determination and resilience as his skill as a batter. I mean, there's so many. And my second innings is much more about his technical skill as a batter. It, it's almost three innings and one, really, but I've gone for Chennai v India at um, February last year. Um, it's the kind of third part of his spin domination trilogy where he got 228 a goal, 186 a goal in the next test, and then the 218 at Chennai to set up what, you know, what's an incredibly rare defeat for India on home soil. And around that period when Root was just churning out these runs there were just these greats of the game queuing up to say they weren't sure they'd seen anyone play any better against Spin across their whole cricket watching lives which you know there's no there's no greater compliment than that the Spin trilogy I like that I like that Uh, and it was just I remember Ben Stokes saying during that series it might have been after the Chennai game he just makes us all feel pretty rubbish because he (laughs) was just playing and this is from Ben Stokes he's quite a good player uh just saying, yeah, I mean, he's just operating on an entirely different plane. Uh, mm. And again, going back to, if you think what every, everything else that was going on at that time, he couldn't get the team that he wanted because they were doing odd things with rotation. There's COVID, there's bubbles. And Root just play, comes out and plays like a god three test matches in a row. And given how bad that year was for England, it, it is easy to forget they did start it with three quite impressive wins. Uh, and one of them was one of their best away wins ever. Two doubles and a 180-odd yeah, I mean, from Root in that, in that three-week yeah. period. <laughs> Um, Katia, how about you? What what two innings from Root have you have you chosen? I've gone with fairly modern as well, so 2016 onwards. First one that I've got is Johannesburg 2016. Yeah, um, sure. that 110. I think it was not out. He scored against South Africa because um, it kind of encapsulated him in kind of all lights. So he came in with us 22 for for two as ever, and then I think soon we were 90 for not 90 for four, something like that. Um, and he played this brilliant counter-attacking innings with Ben Stokes at the other end getting 50 um, against Morney Morkel who absolutely peppered him. And it was such compelling cricket, but it also showed that 
he is this counter he can be this counter-attacking not so much swashbuckling but counter-attacking batsman with Stokes Stokes at the other end um and it was just a brilliant brilliant innings and I think he said afterwards that it was he he regarded it as one of his best at the time he's probably gone past now but it was just cricket that was absolutely brilliant and it was one of those moments that was just like if you could reproduce that every single time that would be amazing when I spoke to him maybe just before that crazy winter that you talk of um he said that to me he said his the two innings that really stick in his mind was the Joe Berg innings for what how you describe it you know for sort of technical completeness and the Trent Bridge 2015 like the the masterpiece knock as well they're the two that he can't that he puts right up there. That was admittedly a couple of years ago now. Mm. Yeah, it's got a few since. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and Kata, your, your other one is one of his many, many hundreds in the last year or so. Yeah, it's the one at um, Edgebaston this year, which was actually one Which of one even one. was that? <laughs> it was the one where I was on work experience here. So, the in, it was in, yeah. That was the India game. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, I think that's pretty self-explanatory, to be honest. Um, but for well, not me, for Phil. Well... <laughs> <laughs> For me, it was just because, especially once he passed 100, and I know he'd had those hundreds against New Zealand as well earlier in, in the summer, but he just looked like he'd had the weight of the world lifted from his shoulders. And once he'd reached 100, he just walked us through the entire repertoire mm. of shots that he had, including that ridiculous reverse scoop ramp, whatever you want to call it, against, um, I think it was Shardell, actually. Um, you know, the, the dab down to third man, the late cut, the reverse sweep. I think he finished the game with a reverse sweep, actually. And it was just, I think Atherton described it on commentary as just joyous batting. And it was absolutely like joyous to watch him and Bairstow at the other end just go about that innings in the way they did. He, he tells Phil in, in the interview that he's never had more fun playing cricket than he's had this year. But he and, looks it. Yeah, exactly. And I think that innings and, and the, the ton at the start of the summer as well, when he was relieved of the captaincy, uh, I think was, you, you can just see it, can't you? You can see it in his face. And we used to say that, even on the pod, I remember saying that when you watch him playing for the 50-over side, he just looks like he's having so much fun compared to the test side where it just looks quite hard work a lot of the time. And of course, it is incredibly hard work being England test captain. Mm. Phil, in fewer than four and a half thousand words, what are your favourite two? You'll be lucky. <laughs> uh, I've gone for the 100 that he made at Trent Bridge in 2021 uh, because it was his first home hundred in since that the back end of 2018 so he had those two years that's the one during your wedding and it's the one during my wedding yeah, yeah. um and I'm nothing if not narcissistic right so <laughs> I remember that one in particular but I remember being updated as the day went on I about how clearly, he was going yeah. and, and it was the talk of the wedding yeah. I think <laughs> talk of the wedding I did a podcast not sure my rival was... podcast I did that that night literally from the grounds of the wedding and it was just a magical day for loads of reasons um and somewhere in the story is that Joe got 100 um and although that game was drawn in the end that was a significant moment for him in his captaincy story I think uh and he needed those runs. Um, and uh, England needed those runs. And England needed those runs because they were behind on first innings. In the end, it rained in that game. And I think India were comfortable favourites to knock the runs off. But then they still needed, I think, 100 and something odd with nine wickets in hand. And then it rained on the final day. So without that, England would have lost almost certainly. Uh, and although I don't know the innings, the details of the innings that much, uh, for obvious reasons... Uh, the significance of it for his story, I think, I think it deserves its its place in his story. Even though it's not a big ton, it's not necessarily a particularly memorable ton, but uh, it's important for him, I think, to have got that one. And the other one is 
is an odd one, but one that matters to me a lot. And it it was the final innings that he had in Australia in 2017-18, his first tour as captain, his second tour as a player. Uh, famously, he's now played 14 test matches in Australia and never made 100. Until he gets that over the line, he'll never be satisfied. And there will always be a small little asterisk against his all-time greatness if he, unless he can get over the line. But that particular last game at Sydney was a heartbreaker. Uh, the conditions, physical conditions, were inhumane. It was literally 48 point something degrees. The hottest day in Sydney since 1936, I think it was. And they were playing cricket. And if you remember, Mason Crane, poor sod, he was bowling leg spin into the non-existent rough. And the Marsh brothers, Perth Marsh brothers, who were used to that kind of horrifying heat, had a day out. Kawaja was dropped five times, made 170. This was the game when Root got 80-odd in the first innings. And if you remember, he was out with 10 minutes to go. And as he walked to the gate, Bairstow walked past him. For 10 minutes left of the day. And Root just looked at him as if to say, what the, what the hell are you doing? Why why have we not got a tail ender coming out here? Bairstow goes out there. Do you remember Joe? Four balls in, nicks off for naught. And it was just one psychodrama after another. Root had held himself together beautifully all tour. Gets to the second innings. And England are going to lose. Of course they're going to lose. But Root, by this point, is on a, is severely dehydrated due to the heat, due to a stomach upset. Uh, and he goes out to bat on the fourth evening in a trance. And it's astonishing to watch. And I was there and we'd all suffered through it. And it was astonishing to watch. You know, he's normally that irritating cliche, busy. He was stock still, didn't move. St- stumbled out there like a ghost. Didn't do any practice shots. Didn't do any of his little runs. He, just, he was just stock still and he batted technically beautifully and repelled the rest, repelled the lot. That night, went to hospital, woke up the following morning, England squad turned up, Root wasn't there, went out to bat, England went out to bat at 11 o'clock that morning, Root wasn't there, and then we heard that he was turning up in a car from the the, the hospital, gets in, he's in within half an hour, doesn't know where he is, and bats again beautifully to, to, to lunch, ends up I think 58 not out, gets to lunch, England, I think, are eight or nine down, last rights of the game, and he collapses in the dressing room and he's sound asleep at lunch when the last rights of the series are completed and England lose, of course, 4-0. Uh, and as the ceremony is taking place and the man of the match and the player of the series, blah, 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 Root is sound asleep. And it's just this achingly perfect metaphor for how grim that tour was for him, but also how dignified he was in the way that he dealt with it. And he maintained his quality. He made four more 450s in that series, despite being thrown heaps of shit from, from the start of the tour, from the Bearstow evidently headbutting someone to Stokes not being there. It was just a litany of disasters for him. And uh, what he did in that on that tour won't ever get spoken about in grand terms, but I think quietly it was magnificent what he managed to pull off. I think it's a good example of, of his toughness, which I think gets underestimated sometimes in that you have cricketers like Graham Smith, Ricky Ponting, Alistair Cook. They're kind of characterised as, as tough cricketers. And no one's saying Joe Root's soft, but I think because of his demeanour, also how easy he makes batting look, sometimes just how tough and resilient 
he is can be underestimated. Uh, to got to have got through the challenges that he has done over the, over the ten years, I think he's you know one of England's toughest batters as as one of, as well as you know probably their best. And also, I'm, I'm glad that an innings where the rest of the team had a not only a difficult Test match but a difficult tour was was picked out because if I think back uh, over Root's ten years, particularly in Test cricket, is just actually how much he's had to stand up by himself. Um, so yeah. I was looking at some numbers of of the last ten years. And uh, Root averages pretty much exactly 50 in Test cricket. And if you take him out, the average top seven English batter averages 32, which is a more than 50% difference. So Root has been so much better than the rest. And then even globally, over the last decade, Smith averages just over 60. Williamson averages just under 60. Coley just over 50. But actually, in England, people across the board have averaged a lot, lot less. Australia and New Zealand are the two highest scoring countries in the world. So it's not it's not fair to say Smith and Williams would have been that much better than, than Coley and Root. It, it is much closer than that. The two I picked out, it's already been mentioned, but Trent Bridge 2015, I thought that was that was peak Root making batting look so easy. Obviously, 60 all out in the morning and then um, Root, Root and Besto take <laughs> the mick in the he's afternoon. He's doubled the team score yeah, exactly, by close. Yeah. But the other one is kind of similar vibe to, to the Sydney one, but a little bit more positive. It was Bridgetown this year. I mean, if you had to rank... Roots 28 test hundreds this is probably quite near the bottom in terms of taking account the pitch match situation etc but it was more that he the winter that he had endured captain that that horrible ashes series where England were you know lucky to get the nil and you had 10,000 English fans the, the ground was completely packed when he got to his hundred the standing ovation was really quite similar to the one that Cook got at the oval in his last test match it was like the English fans were saying, thank you. The English fans couldn't really go out to Australia. And this was their moment where they showed their gratitude to, to what Root had done. And for so much of his England career, so much of his captaincy, he was basically the only guy to average more than 35. Uh, since his debut, the only other English batter to average more than 40 has got a knighthood. Um, and then of the guys to average more than 35 in that time, two of those are Bell and Trot, who retired years ago. Um, he's, he's pretty much done it on his own until this year. That, that idea of, offering thanks to a selfless cricketer. Nasser Hussein alludes to that in the, in the, the piece that Joe was talking about that I've done with, with, with Root. Uh, when Root made that 100 at Lords in the kind of, the era catalyst 100, right, for the Stokes era, mm. when he makes that unbeaten 115, I think it is, to beat New Zealand in a game that England were behind in. When he makes that 100, Nasser speaks quite a lot about that. And being present at Lords as the place rose as one, and there were there being that sense of a kind of outpouring of appreciation for a bloke who has been through the ringer here and there, but has maintained some kind of integrity throughout, you know. And there was a real sort of celebratory feeling around his own personal achievement there. Um, and there is a sort of catharsis to to his story, I think, in the last the last year or so. It's it's a compelling one, and I think the gratitude comes from a place of. England were quite often really rubbish to watch, but however rubbish they were, there's one world class. You always batter. want to watch him. Exactly, exactly. Moving from one England great to another, um, I'm going to start with a quiz. Katty, I'm not going to expect too much from you here because you would have been quite young when uh, the subject of this question took place. So, to illustrate just how far he's come, I want uh, you to try and work out slash guess the England 11 from Jimmy Anderson's debut game in 2002. So it's in that tri VB tri-series against Australia. It was against Zimbabwe, wasn't it? Australia. 
straight, straight oh sorry yeah, the, the, the ODI, ODI game, game. Yeah. Oh, right. so, that, so wow. that is 20 years ago today by the way uh, so the England ODI oh, team gosh. against Australia in December 2002 that Can pool? I get the notable, well-known ones straight away and go then for leave it. the rest of you to yeah, yeah, go with for the lesser names? Uh, I'm going to say Alex Stewart. Yep. Uh, NASA. Yep. Vaughn. Vaughn. No. Vaughn's Vaughn probably having a rest. Side bottom. No. Collingwood. No. Well, who played in the 03 World Cup? Who, who, Good place to start. Oh, should get the openers. Caddick. No. He played in the 03 World Cup, um, <laughs> didn't he? <laughs> Goffey. O- openers. No. Triscothic? Triscothic. Uh, Mullally? No. No, he's gone. So I put you out of your misery. But didn't he take something like... He went for about 12 runs. So in not 10. his debut, but I think that's his second or third game. Right. I think he went 10 overs for 12 or 13 with six maidens. So he's Mark still... Elam? No. Oh. Great. Hollyoak? No. Simon Jones. No. Harmison. No. <laughs> right. Thorpe. No. I'm, I'm just going to go. So, Triscothic and Knight. Knight. Um, Nick Knight. Ronnie Arani at three. Punchy. Nasser Sane at four. Owe Shaw at five. Yeah. Alex Stewart at six. Ian Blackwell, seven. Oh. Eight, Craig White. Nine, Gareth Batty. Ten, Jimmy. And 11, James Curley. One eleven. Um, that would have taken us weeks. <laughs> You'd have to edit that one. Um, Phil, do you want to kick us off for our favourite Anderson spells? Uh, yes, right. What have I got here? So I've got two. Um, I was there for the first one, which was Kolkata 2012 winter. Uh, and England won the game, just as they'd won at Mumbai the week before. Nobody saw it coming. Uh, they went into the series in all kinds of... Um, off-field hassles with the Peterson saga and as the reintegration series the reintegration it? series yeah um, Peterson obviously did what he did at Mumbai as everyone knows the 180 and they won that game and they went into Kolkata and everyone was expecting a, a writing of this this glitch um, a correction in the story and Cook went and got 190 and either side of it Anderson was imperious with the ball and as I say I, I was lucky enough to be there at Eden Gardens to see it happen and I think he took three in the first innings um, and three in the second and it's the ones in the first innings that stick in my mind because he got rid of uh, Sachin Tendulkar who was a good player and Virat Kohli who was also a good player and he got and he nicked them both off uh, he got three of the first six top six out um and then came back in the second innings to finish it off. And uh, although the series will be remembered for, for Cook's brilliance, three big hundreds, Peterson's, Scene Steelers, and Swan and Panasar uh, in Mumbai in particular, but Anderson on that first day, when you just assume it's going to be 500 plays, whatever, or England might be able to summon or muster, Anderson was just untouchable. Um, and... That was the first glimpse that I saw of him away from home uh, beginning this astonishing decade that you spoke about literally three days ago on this show. Uh, The fact that he averages now less in India over the last 10 years than he does at home across the last decade. Yeah, Asia in general, yeah. Sorry, on the subcontinent, which is a mind blower. Mm. Uh, And that was 10 years ago now and and that pretty much to the week. And that's one for me. And another one briefly was... 
And I wasn't there for the final day of it, but I was there for much of it. it was the Trent Bridge one-man show against Australia in the first test match when he took 10? Mm. Yeah, five and it, five? Yeah, five and five. And he finished it off at the end, nicked off, had in... And they had to go for the re- the DRS and all of that, but it was it's one of the great modern Ashes tests. It mm. is, it is. Which yeah. is sort of, oddly sort of got forgotten somehow. Yeah, I think, I think he, he bowled something like thirteen o eleven or twelve thirteen overs either side of lunch, and it was one of those moments where it was him or bust. There was nobody else who was going to do the job for them. And Australia, as you say, they were getting very close to it. I think it was only I should have it written so down. It was like twelve runs. It was in about a twelve or yeah. thirteen run win in the end. Yeah. Steve Finn dropped a catch on the boundary didn't That's he, it. when they needed That's 20 it. or so to win. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there you go, those two. Those two. But I mean, my word, how do you narrow down, down Anderson's story? I, I was going to say, uh, I had a lot of fun just going through my favourite Root and Anderson performances this week. Katia, what, what are your two? I've gone from two, for two from the same year. I've gone for Lords against the West Indies in 2017, the match where he took his 500th wicket, castled Craig Brathwaite, middle stump, I think it was in the evening but actually the reason I remember that one particularly is the morning after not massively for anything that Anderson did but because of I think it was Michael Goff who I have an image burned onto my memory of him covering his eyes and turning away after Anderson had just nipped one past the off stump as if to say how on earth is that not about you (laughs) um and I think it just summed up everyone watching the majority of the spells he bowled just going how on earth has he not got out to at least one of those balls um and he ended up taking five for and he had it on a string as usual that morning um and then the second one is Adelaide in 2017 where he took five in Australia and I like that one because there wasn't anything massively special about it it was just that there had been a lot of talk about how Anderson broad useless in Australia kind of thing but it's like you said Phil that when there was no one else it was just you have to give the ball to Anderson because he will make something happen and it was the pink ball test match under lights so the one that's going to suit him most and he bowled 11 overs before the end of play in the third innings and then he bowled eight overs on the bounce straight up the following morning as well and you had Wokes and then you had I think it was actually Overton it was Overton um and it was just that he was the only one who was going to take those wickets and he did take them he so you know I think it just sums up the way that England have relied on Anderson so much. And I, I guess that as he's got older, we tend not to take him for granted as much, but I still think you take someone, you always take someone for granted who's as good as he does and he delivers mm. on such a regular basis as he does. I don't see a reason how you can not take them for granted. I very nearly chose a spell from the year before. When, do you remember the Sri Lanka series at home? Where I think I've never seen a bowler just look so much, just like way, way too good for the opposition. I think there's one test where he finished with figures of like, 10 for 40 or something like that. Joe, what are your, what are your two? So I've gone with two spells that are actually 12 years apart, um, but quite similar thematically uh, in that they're examples of him kind of seizing control of a test match on the very first morning. I was there for both of them live and they always tend to stick a bit more in the memory of if you're there to witness them firsthand. So the first one was Adelaide 2010. I remember getting there on that first morning and there being a sort of collective groan in the press box when Australia won the toss and chose to bat. It was assumed to just be a road. There'd been stacks of runs at Brisbane. It was just expected to be more of the same. And then 13 balls into the innings, Australia three down. Obviously, the Jonathan Trot ran out, got the ball rolling. But then it was Anderson with a kind of classic away swinger to get Ponting. Swan takes the catch at slip. Then does the same thing to Michael Clark in his next over. Swan takes the catch again. 
And then you got Shane Watson just after lunch and then another tail ender. So he only got four in the innings. Statistically, it wasn't up there with his, his best performances. Um, but I, I really liked it as a as an example of how much he was developing at that stage because he'd been taken to the cleaners on the previous Ashes tour. Uh, his away record was still poor. So he averaged 44 from 19 away tests going into that series. So a, a really a poor record away from home. There was still that narrative that he could only really do it in England. And this was one of the the first examples that actually he, he was developing the skills and the attitude to be able to do it in whatever conditions. Um, and then, yeah, since the start of that Ashes tour in 2010-11, he's averaged 27 away from home. So for me, that that was the the kind of the the shift in the narrative, really, from being a, a home, you know, kind of almost like a flat track bully or whatever the bowler equivalent of that is uh, at home to suddenly being this incredibly skillful bowler wherever he was wherever he was operating. And then the second one, a dozen years later, uh, June this year at Lords against New Zealand. Um, Anderson's back in the side. Obviously, he's been dropped for the tour of the Caribbean from the bits of county cricket we'd been watching. I remember on the podcast, I think my new, me, you, Phil, but I think we all kind of collectively agreed. It looked like he'd lost a bit of zip. He wasn't taking stacks of county wickets like he usually does. And there was that sense that actually his career was on the line going into that test, which feels a very odd thing to say now because he's so embedded in it again. Um, gets Will Young caught and slips second over. Latham goes the same way in his third. And then suddenly it's just everything's as it should be. And it was bizarre to think we ever questioned it would be anything else. That first spell was something like six overs naught for two, wasn't yeah. it? Literally yeah, something yeah. absurd like that. And New Zealand didn't bat well, but Anderson gave them absolutely nothing. And then... but. The bit almost I preferred was later in that innings, there was this kind of twist where England hadn't taken a wicket for about two overs and Stokes was getting bored. So suddenly they start bowling bounces and Anderson's running in bowling short balls. The two wickets he gets later in the innings are short balls. And he actually spoke to Felix, uh, who'd interviewed him just after that test and just before that test about bowling the short ball for Lancashire and, you know, sort of taking the piss out of himself a bit as an old man trying to do this. And suddenly you see it in a test match and it's actually coming off. And he has taken quite a few wickets for the short ball over the last uh, kind of nine months. Uh, but also showed his willingness to embrace this new Stokes McCullum era and to not take the safety first option as, as he admitted he probably had done at times to, to accept these much more attacking fields and to go hunting for wickets in a way that he might not have done for a while. Um, and now he's a huge, huge part of, of this side. Uh, I mean, he, he's, we've seen in Pakistan just how important he is um, and how much England still depend on him, even when they're playing a completely different style of cricket to, well, let alone 20 years ago, but ten, <laughs> last, this time last year, and Anderson's still right, right at the heart of it. But what, what's interesting about that, though, is that in, in Rao Pindi, his, his fourth innings was his shortest spell he's ever bowled, I think, statistically, which... In, as a 40-year-old on a tour to try and find new ways of taking wickets on a pitch that just isn't friendly to the natural way you would bowl mm. is just quite incredible. What, what's, what's this? Just, you look like Ringo Starr, right? Sort of <laughs> 90s era Ringo Starr, massively so. It's uncanny. There you go. Oh, wow. There That's not go. good. That's... Peace and love, peace and love. Um, <laughs> my two spells are 18 years apart if it's a competition. So 2003 in the World Cup against Pakistan. If you've not seen it, watch it. That's... Anderson bowling quick, swinging the ball away. I think he bowls Inzaman with a away swinging Yorker, um, which is pretty special. And then in Chennai last year in the same test matches, the root double ton that Joe mentioned. There's one over in particular that stands out when he 
clean bowls and gets the I'm not sure it was one over or maybe two when he when he bowls Gill and Rahane and mm. and the stumps cartwheel both reverse swinging and yeah a famous England victory to which Anderson was was totally crucial and just demonstrating actually just how effective he can be on basically any pitch in the world. What was your first one? Sorry, uh, Cape Town 2003. Right, World Cup against Pakistan. Yeah, it was your, it was Yusuf. Yeah, yeah, uh, I think he did four for twenty four, odd. Four for not much. Yeah. yeah, both Anderson and Root will be in the England team for the final test of their series in Pakistan. There's not been a huge amount of team news. Nassim Shah has been ruled out of the test match for Pakistan. There's a possibility of a debut for Mohammad Wasim Jr. Possibility that Shah Massoud comes into the sides we talked about the other day. Joe, you've obviously not been on the pod during the series. What do you think England will do in the final test match? Do you think Rahan Ahmed will come in? I think they'll be really tempted to give him a go. It would be a kind of fitting finale to this to this series where they've tried absolutely everything. That said, I, th- I think it's tricky to see how they get him in there because it'd be the natural swapping him in for Jacks would be the kind of the natural move. Comes in as the as the second spinner. He has got a first class ton at the end of last year for Leicestershire, but he'd probably be batting at number seven, pr- probably at least one spot too high for him on Test debut. The balance of the side gets a bit kind of messed up as a result. That said, they might just not care and just think, let's give it a go. I mean, I, I would love to see it. If I'm thinking what's the best way to win the test match, then I'm not sure it's playing him. If it's gone, let's just have a let's just have a look. Why not? When are you going to get a better chance? 2 0 up in a series in Pakistan with a with a free hit, essentially. Um, I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised if they go that way. Well, I think it comes down to what Stokes said at the start of the series, isn't it? We might chuck him a cap if we feel like it. I think that was his quote. Um, so you really? I think he said that, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, Joke. put his money where his mouth is, actually do it. But yeah, I guess there's a couple of ways you could go, couldn't you? You could say, well, Anderson's bowled the most of any seamer on this tour. 40, Robinson's bowled a lot. Mark Wood's made of glass, give one of them a rest, throw in Overton, Ahmed, whatever. But I can't really see Stokes and McCollum doing that. I think they'll probably just go, what's the best 11 to to win us a first 3-0 series whitewash in Pakistan and, and go with that. And mm. that best 11 has, well, it's an unchanged 11 really, isn't it? So Yeah, I think there's a case though that Rohan does improve the attack and improve the team. But Will Jack didn't really do anything in the last test bowled match. He bowled, he bowled loads in the first the test match. But then in this test match, Root bowled loads and Root bowled really, really well. So if Root's your, your second spinner, I can understand if they want just something else from the guy who's the third spinner. And I, I agree, he, he probably shouldn't bat seven, but I'm not sure if England think like that. I think they'll just bat the top six to get the runs and they'll think that Rahan can, can play. Rahan's batted, not only got a first class century, but there are a couple of... I think it's a hundred game where he batted at five as well. So he he clearly well, rates he, his he own told batting. Taha is a better batter than he is a bowler, which <laughs> I'm not sure I believe that. I think that's a great thing to say when you're definitely a great leg spinner or great leg spinner um, in the making to say that I'm a better batter. On on players bigging up their their batting, well, bowlers bigging up their batting. Matt Potts told me at the start of the year that he viewed himself as a as an all rounder. With Ahmed, I think what it what it shows is there's so many people before the tour going when when he was selected, going if you bowl if you play him and then he does awfully and gets smashed, it will destroy him. And on previous tours, I think they might take that in mind, but I don't think they'll really mm. do that now because they'll back, first of all, Ahmed to have a strong mind enough to, to not let that happen and then the team to be as positive and as backing as they are mm. to not let that happen to him. So if they do chuck him a cap and even if he does get carted out of the park, 
does it really matter as much as it would have done if he'd happened in previous tours? And I'm it's different sure. to, to the Crane debut, for example. When yeah. Crane made his debut, he bowled loads in that test match. If, if Ahmed doesn't bowl well in this test match, he's not going to have to bowl that much. Yeah. Possibly be coming into the side for a guy who bowled eight overs in the last test match. Uh, and Stokes didn't bowl. We don't know how his knee is, but England do have options. They have, they have so many bowling options that I think he's, he's quite safe Like if it does go badly. The dynamic is so... Take Crane or even go back to Borthwick as an example. Those were desperation picks at the end of a series where basically no one wanted to play anymore. Certainly in the Borthwick tour. I mean, mm. Swan had literally packed his bags and gone home. This is there is nothing to lose. So God, I'm talking myself into it. Yeah, play him. <laughs> Absolutely play him. Moving on. Yesterday, Azim Rafiq and former Essex seamer Jahid Ahmed appeared in front of a parliamentary committee hearing to give evidence on racism in the English game. The journalists George DeBell and Yorkshire chair Lord Patel were also there. Um, it's been more than two years since Rafiq first went public about his experiences of racism and more than a year since he first spoke to that same parliamentary committee. We had a, a few questions on this and I think... My main takeaway from it was just how much slower the action has been than we probably hoped a year or so ago. Um, I watched the whole thing and for me, the most striking part of it was when George shared the details of his correspondence he had with one county chair where it allegedly uh, emerged that they had owned, that county had only sent one WhatsApp message um, to a player who had claimed that they had experienced racism at that club and they hadn't received a reply and they hadn't done anything about it. And then later on, um, Ahmed claimed that he'd essentially received no support since he went public about his own experiences of racism a year ago. This is a quote from, from the hearing. He said, from the ECB to the PCA to Essex even, I'm a victim and I don't feel like I get any support from anyone. Whether they care, I don't know, but it doesn't feel like I've had much support from it. Simon asks, what are your thoughts on the recent DCMS hearing and how can the mainstream cricketing press do more to really address racism? Um, my take on it is basically that if you we were talking about this before we started recording, if you go on news websites on who've, who've covered the hearing, a lot of the focus is on Rafiq, which is understandable given he was the first person to go public with it. But I think as the hearing the other day showed that the story is much, much bigger than that and bigger than him and I think uh, you know, I'll hold my hands out I, I don't think I've done enough in the last few months kind of looking at the other stories but I think that is probably what the cricket media um, should do uh, focus on the other stories that are there that are still unresolved there are still people who've said they've experienced racism and it sounds like not that much has happened Phil it's obviously quite a difficult um, topic to navigate but what were your overall thoughts from what happened it is really hard to sum up um, and I'm I'm loath to because it will sound trite. It, it felt like it hasn't really moved the story along at all, and it hasn't really revealed much more than we knew in the first place. Well, there's a number of independent reports that are either currently taking place or have been delayed or have been released, and independent reports uh, and investigations have taken place. Um, and even within that, there is still a there is still a sort of morass of confusion ar around it. I played cricket with Jahid Ahmed. We were in the same club team, um, and it's it's no it's undoubtedly been very very difficult for him personally. Uh, Essex have released a, a holding statement pending their own independent review into his allegations and those of other people who have been involved. There is so much still to go here. 
And you still feel like in certain parts of the game, there is a reluctance to confront these awkward, horrifying truths. Um, indeed, if they are truths, and in many cases, almost all cases they are, from what you hear from the people that you talk to. But I've also spoken to people who um, have been closely involved in county cricket and who one or two I would count as friends, you know, who have been in these kinds of county dressing rooms, not incidentally the focal point dressing rooms, it's worth pointing out, but there there remains a lot to do, there, a lot of cultural resistance to acknowledging the the idea of systemic problems. Rafiq's as in Rafiq's personal story is a is a very complex one now and an increasingly complex one uh, and there are some people in cricket who are quite comfortable with his reputation being questioned and the integrity of his position being questioned because of other instances now you can have Azim acknowledging mistakes that he's made in his own story that doesn't negate the abuse that he uh has received part of the evidence that Rafiq uh, gave the committee uh, after they, they they spoke was just actually just illustrated how many of his claims I guess have been corroborated by multiple people. Right. Uh, so it's an extremely long list. You can easily find it online on the DCMS yeah. website. And um, I think there's also an, an issue with the speed of these investigations as well. I mean, we're seeing that with Essex now. This is going on a long, long time, and not only do we want to get to the truth quickly, there are also people, you know, people, humans are involved here, hanging, waiting to see what will happen. We had the same thing with, with Yorkshire initially. Their their policy was to take as long as possible in the hope that it would dissipate and no one would care anymore. And obviously that backfired on their faces massively. And obviously there are complicated legal issues here. I understand that. But, and I don't know the solution to this, whether the ECB can put more pressure on Essex to move things along as quickly as they possibly can or whether they're already doing that. But it, it does no one any favours apart from the accused county that these things take yeah, so quite, long to So I was talking to, to, to Tar, who was there and he made the point that the lack of support Ahmed has received does make you wonder why would a player bother? Um, you go through a lot. You, you're not, you might ne- not necessarily be someone who's comfortable being in the public eye. You have to go through a lot. A lot of people, a sizable minority, it is a minority, but it's a it's a big one, don't believe you. Um, it does make you wonder why would a player come out? Um, it's it's definitely not easy. And I think on the on the hearing itself, uh, I thought it was quite a strange event in that the organizations that needed to be scrutinized weren't there. I mean, it was it was good to hear how, you know, the, exactly what the situation is now, but what I thought made the hearing last year so powerful was that you had the ECB there you had Yorkshire there and they were answering questions and this time you had to be honest I thought quite ill-informed MPs I thought some of their questions were quite poor um, and it's quite clear they hadn't done a huge amount of research themselves got the impression they'd just flicked through the document they were given shortly before going on and that was it so, so it wasn't as constructive as I think it could and should have there been. Was the, the first hearing from last year felt like there was a degree of rigour behind it but I didn't get that impression Mm. And the bits that I've seen of this one and the quotes that I've read as well. It was almost impossible to because the, the wrong people were up there. Right. Yeah. Um, well, they're not, 
it's obviously good to hear from the people who are up there, but they were not the people who have the power no, to change the stuff the, that exactly, we need changing. The, 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 the bigger question, the over, overriding question is how deep does this go? How embedded is this? And what's going to be done about it over the mm. next period of time? It's going to be a long process. So much bigger than a set of individuals. Mm. Linked to the story is that Gary Balance is leaving Yorkshire and returning to play in Zimbabwe next year. Uh, Balance had previously admitted to using racial slurs towards Rafiq. The pair uh, met in the summer and Balance, who last played for England in 2017, apologised to Rafiq. One of the saddest aspects of the Rafiq story is that he feels like he's been forced out of the country due to the reaction towards him speaking about his experiences. And quite a big part of the hearing of the day actually was Rafiq outlining that, specifically talked about um, some of the reaction to the Yorkshire Post covering of it. And Balance is obviously no victim, but on a human level, this is another young man leaving his home to make a new start somewhere else. Phil, you spoke to a, a journalist in Zimbabwe about the reaction in Zimbabwe to... Yeah, to I spoke to Liam Brickhill, who's an excellent Zimbabwe-based journalist. Um, and he's observed that the Zimbabwean cricket public community have reacted cautiously positively to to this news i mean it's a weird one if you're a zimbabwe cricket fan knowing what balance has admitted to have said etc and this is the reason why it's coming it's a yeah. complex one but but possibly as liam alludes to the feeling is that what happened in england with yorkshire is an english yorkshire problem that doesn't necessarily find its way into zimbabwean cricket which has its own identity and its own story and its own story of of diversity as well and and you know, Liam suggests that perhaps Balance's story can be absorbed into what has become a very positive story about Zimbabwean cricket. So if you saw that squad that did so well at the T20 World Cup a couple of months ago, this was a very racially diverse squad. This was um, this was a squad that seemed to represent the best of a progressive cricket and culture. Um, you know, a kind of all, a complete range of of races and ethnicities within that side. And so if Balance's story can be somehow absorbed into that and can be and he can be and he can find his his way into embracing Zimbabwean culture again, then perhaps there is some kind of redemption arc in there, as Liam sort of alludes to. Um uh look, it's very difficult, but look on on a I'm not in the business of enjoying watching somebody descend into into despair and balance his spirit, as you rightly say, he's not a victim with a capital V, but uh, he's suffered as well with the consequences of his own actions, um, and his mental health has has gone through the floor. Uh, and if this is a possible way out, then I think you'd have to have a pretty vicious heart to stand in the way of that personally. Yeah, I, I think I see this as a positive story really or a positive ending I mean Rafiq said when he met up with Balance in the summer that he now sees Balance as, as part of the solution rather than part of the problem I think at some point people will disagree with him but I think, it's, I think at some point you have to put a line underneath it mm, and, and let let him have a new life it was always going to be difficult to rehabilitate his character in county cricket I think you know I wasn't surprised he left Yorkshire but I was ex- I was waiting to see which county he'd go to next then the news comes through that it's Zimbabwe, and I think there's a there's a lot of positives to take from that. Dave Houghton, who's the Zimbabwe coach, who is Gary Balance's uncle. I don't think he's technically his uncle, uncle, but he's he's related to him through various connections. Um, 
I thought his quote summed up quite well, actually. So he said, from the cricket side of things, I think it will benefit us greatly. But I think we also have to look at it from the other side. It's also going to be a big benefit for Gary himself. He's had a very difficult 18 months, two years. It's affected his mental health very badly. And I know from speaking to him recently that he's absolutely thrilled and excited to be coming back home and to be playing cricket with us. So from both points of view, I think it's a really good situation. Balance, he was born in Harare. He played under-19 cricket for Zimbabwe. This, this isn't necessarily him being kind of shunned and forced to a country that... that this is him going back to his his roots. Um, would he have even come over to England in the first place if it wasn't for his cricket career? Possibly not. He got a scholarship to Harrow. So I hope that this will turn out to be a, a positive story. Houghton said he's keen to get Balance playing international cricket for Zimbabwe as soon as possible. He's going to play some domestic cricket first. Um, and it will benefit Zimbabwe hugely. If they, get Gary, if they get the Gary Balance who was playing for England, what was it? I don't know. Five, six years ago. Five, yeah. six years ago. I mean, they've got a bloody good cricketer there. So that 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 is a good thing for kind of the landscape of of those te- those test nations kind of bubbling under who don't necessarily get the same opportunities. Mm. Well, next up, a bit of a gear change. We'll talk about England's tour of West Indies. Katia, since we last spoke, uh, Sophie Eccleston has had a couple of very, very good games. Mm, she didn't play last night. Um, there's a lot of rotation going on. Um, but yeah, she's been, as ever, excellent. Um, Charlie Dean last night on T20 debut, which I that feels actually, weird. It feels yeah. really odd. I didn't realise it was T20 debut, but she, she actually said after the match, she took three wickets, and she said after the match, it didn't feel like my T20 debut because <laughs> played in the 100, played in ODIs for a while. Mm. But yeah, she's also had a really, really good tour. She took, I think, four for in one of the matches of one of the ODI matches. But in terms of the England side in general, they got pushed closer than they have been on this tour last night, which isn't saying much because I think their smallest margin of victory on the ODI tour was 142 runs. And then they won the first T20 by eight wickets. It's difficult to to try and form an opinion on this tour because it feels so developmental. And you've got to give England credit for winning the matches because you can only win the matches that are put in front of you. But when you contrast it with the Australia tour of India that's going on at the minute, it feels like that is so much better preparation for the T20 World Cup that's happening at the minute, rather than trying to rotate through and find your best 11 um, on a tour of the West Indies on which you are dominating. So Nat Siver didn't play last night, Sophie Eccleston and Amy Jones didn't play last night. Lauren Winfield-Hill kept wicket. Alice Davidson-Richards was in the T20 side, which she isn't normally. And it just feels a bit odd. And I, I, I always feel that when you're preparing for a major tournament like that, it's so much better to play re- and, and lose really close games of cricket than try and rotate through your players and find your best 11. If you can do both at the same time, like England did in Pakistan before the Men's T20 World Cup, then brilliant. But mostly you can't. There are positives to come out. Like Lauren Bell, Lauren Bell's bowled really, really well. Um, and considering at the end of the summer last year, she looked slightly, I'm not going to say lost because that's the wrong word, but she did look, like the rest of them, like they needed guidance and they needed pulling together and they needed that direction. And it's great to see that she's she's had that and, and she's really flourishing now. But it almost feels as if, and speaking before the tour, John Lewis said that, um, well, Heather Knight said actually that John, she thought John Lewis wasn't that far away from knowing what the best 11 was. At that point, he'd only been the coach of the side a week. So that's kind of saying something. Um, but it almost feels like they've come away from this tour or they will come away from this tour, bear in mind there are still three T20s with more questions than they've answered mm. ahead of the T20 World Cup, especially given the injuries to Alice Capsey and Freya Kemp. 
Um, don't know whether they're going to be ruled out over the. the Rory Kemp's world. just uh, news come through just now. She's got a stress fracture of the back, so, so assume... she's definitely out of that and out for quite a long time potentially. She's already had a serious back injury, which kept her out of the first hundred as well. I think it was a back injury, certainly a serious injury. Mm. Mm. I, I guess from John Lewis' point of view, uh, as as we talked about when he was appointed, he hadn't met most, if not all, the players before. So from his point of view, he's probably just getting to know, yeah, I guess forming opinions of players he might not know that well. Yeah, um, but, but it, ju- it just feels like this T20 World Cup is coming just about six months too soon, mm. um, given where they are. And they're good. Like you can't, like on this tour, you, you can't fault them for what they've done. They've, I've said the smallest margin of victory was 142 runs in the ODI tour. Mm. They won the first T20 by eight wickets. But it's just, there's something missing for me. Um, and it's just six months too early. It's yeah. not helpful that, that's, I mean, Deandra Dottin retired from international cricket in the summer, saying she, I think she took issue with the environment of the changing room. Stephanie Taylor's missing this series with injury. You take those two out, the West Indies are significantly weaker side. But it is hard to prepare for these tournaments because England are essentially preparing to hope to beat Australia in a final. Like that, that that's really where they are at the moment. They're so, I mean, India might have something to say about that, but those three are so far ahead of everyone else at the moment. I think England haven't lost a T20I series other than Australia for nine years so they just don't really lose them they don't lose them but there, there is still stuff like, like if you're comparing it to the India Australia series that's going on at the minute what's really stood out for me is that in those moments both those sides have players especially with the bat that go on once they've got 40 or 50 and make those bigs 80s 90s whatever and that's something that isn't happening as much for England like on this tour you said the West Indies are weak and they don't have DeAndre Dotton's tried they don't have Stefani Taylor Hayley Matthews is a really they're really dependent on Haley Matthews. But apart from Nat Sivers' 90-odd in the first ODI, you've had Danny Wyatt making 60. I think Amy Jones has made a 50. But none of them... Dunkley got 47-odd last night. But none of them have gone on after that to go and really put them to the sword and put the game to bed. And whilst if you if you get bowled out in an ODI for 240 against the West Indies or you, or you post 140 in a T20 you'll be able to run through the West Indies. You won't be able to run through Australia or India, mm. you know, so it won't, it won't fly when you're playing against those two. And, and when India came in the summer and played that T20, yes, they won the series, but they lost one of the matches and they easily could have lost the last one. And again, no one went on and made those really big scores for them in that series. Your moment of the week is from that Australia-India series. Mm. Yeah, it is. Um, the Super Over, brilliant, brilliant game. Um, and so it started with... Mooney and, and McGrath absolutely hammering the India bowlers. and But they posted their highest ever total against India. And at that point, I just thought, there's no way. There's absolutely no way they're getting them. And the remarkable thing is they should have done it easily. They should have done it um, with an over to spare. Um, Shmiti Mandana scored 79 um, and then got out with three overs to go, three and a half overs to go, and they needed 40. And it felt like, I think someone said on, on when I was chatting about it, that um, typical India, you know, they're going to get so close and then they're not going to do it. And you never get an opportunity to, to beat Australia in, in any match. They haven't been beaten since March 2021 before this in T20s. And um, then Gosh came in and hit three sixes in six balls um, and then played... A just mind-blowing penultimate over where they still needed like 22 and then they 
blocked out for singles, the penultimate over. And then she took a single off the first ball of the last over. So she wasn't on strike. And then I can't remember who it was off uh, the top of my head. Vaidya. Vaidya yeah. needed five to win off the last ball. So a six or a four to take it to a super over. And she hit the four and took it to... I'm on the edge of my seat. What happened yeah. to super over? No, no. <laughs> so much. But um, they posted 21 in the super over. Which no. is massive. 21. And then Australia came in and they didn't send out Mooney or McGrath. First up, they sent out Healy, which I understand. Gardner, Gardner yeah. who hadn't batted in that match before. That she, seemed very odd. Very, and she very was out odd. first ball as yeah, well. <laughs> she was. So yeah, they stuffed it up essentially. But when, yeah. when you're... All of this, by the way, was me clicking refresh on Quick Info because you can't actually watch it in the yeah. UK. I enjoyed that. I had, I had no idea, shockingly. That was excellent. Joe, your moment of the week is not from a game, but a piece of news that is, is quite big. Yeah, news came through overnight UK time that Kane Williamson stepping down as New Zealand test captain. Done it for six years. Uh, best win percentage of any New Zealand skipper ever. I thought he'd do it forever. Uh, captain his team to the inaugural <laughs> World Test Championship title. Yeah, well, he's had he's had a few injuries. He hasn't actually played a huge amount of test cricket over the last couple of years. Uh, so I didn't see it as a huge shock. Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a long time to have done it, albeit you don't have the fixture schedule that, that England do through no fault of their own. Um, but I think it's fair to say he's, he's done his bit as, as captain. I think the surprise is who's replaced him. They've gone for Tim Southey over Tom Latham. Tom Latham's been the vice for a while now. He's captained, I think, nine tests in Williamson's absence. Southey's done a bit of white ball captaincy, but never captained the test side. Southey's 34, Latham's 30. Uh, and Southey, after two brilliant years in test cricket, has had a relatively poor 2022. I think he's averaging 40 with the ball. was made to look very ordinary by England this summer, although that's true of quite a lot of bowlers over the last nine months or so. Um, and it just feels like a, a bit of a backward step. And I think maybe it's symptomatic of where this New Zealand test side is and, and potentially going. We've talked a bit about this a little bit in the past that there doesn't seem to be that new generation really hammering the door down to, to kind of force some of the old guys out or, or take over the spots from people who have, have retired. Uh, when you think about New Zealand beating India in a World Test Championship final, when you think about the difference in financial resources, the player pool, it's kind of almost miraculous, really, they managed to pull that off. And I, I do think over the next couple of years, we're going to see a, a sort of levelling off where where New Zealand probably slip down to, you know, more of the kind of Sri Lanka, hopefully not West Indies, but that, that kind of level, because I just don't see the players coming through to, to keep this train going, really. Um, especially when you throw in the fact that they're having issues getting tying down players on long-term contracts who are looking to go and play franchise cricket like Trent Bolt. Um, I hope none of this comes true. I love the New Zealand team. I think they've done amazing things, but it, that that feels like the direction of, of travel for me. The, the flip side is that Gary Stead, the New Zealand coach, has said Williamson standing down as test captain will hopefully prolong his career as a test cricketer, as a specialist batter. So we'll have to wait and see on that. But um, it's a slightly tricky time for, for New Zealand at the moment. I don't think a, a 34-year-old seamer taking over as your test captain is necessarily going to invigorate things very much. Hmm. Well, I wanted Broad to be the England test captain, so I've, I guess I have to back this. <laughs> Different um, time, though, wasn't yeah. it? Hang on, who wanted Sam Billings? Uh, well, I don't think we should go back into that. Um, <laughs> no one but none of, the, none of the Fab Four are captains anymore. 
you wouldn't have guessed that a year or so ago. Elsewhere, Australia beat West Indies 2-0. Lavashane scored another 100. Scott Bowling in his first test since the Ashes took a triple wicket maiden in his first over of the second innings. He now averages less than five in the second innings of test matches. Something about um, Scott Bowling just makes me feel awful. Whenever I hear his name, it's just traumatic. terrible memories. It's yeah, it's like yeah. post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, <laughs> um, Phil, Australia plays South Africa now. Um, we've got a couple of questions in. Do, do South Africa have a chance? Um, Joe oh. asks... I fear their batting lineup is is too brittle for it to be a contest. I kind of agree. Um, I agree wholeheartedly. Um, I kept I went through their squad a couple of days ago, waiting to see a, a name that could convince yeah, me otherwise. Yeah. Uh, I, I, Bavuma's back in the side. I hope he has an okay series. You know, he's a cricketer I like a lot, but I just cannot see the runs there, and it's a flimsy middle order with with a keeper that I'm not really convinced by. Keep a bat that I'm not convinced. Yeah, yes. and then Ben's not here, right? Um, but we've got questions on what does this mean this for the really World Test Championship? Phil, outside your comfort zone, a little bit. Of his comfort zone. <laughs> this is good stuff, right? Should have heard the conversation with Ben before this podcast, <laughs> right? Come round, folks. Uh, okay, so there are five teams, by my reckoning, or rather by Ben's reckoning and my dodgy notes, that can still qualify for the. The WTC final next next summer. Australia are top. South Africa are third. India are South Africa are second. India are fourth. Sri Lanka are third, and Pakistan are fifth as it stands. But obviously, that doesn't mean anything in the in the scheme of it. I'm going to try my best here. Australia, if they whitewash South Africa in those three Test matches, then they can afford to lose all four Tests against India in the spring and still make it. So 3-0 to Australia against South Africa, and it's in the bag for Australia. However, <laughs> if they lose one game against South Africa and get whitewashed by India, then they're very, very likely to be dumped out. So this three-match three, three series against South Africa is very important for the, for the shakedown of this. If South Africa win two test matches in Australia, long shot, but if they do, that puts themselves in a very strong position, in inverted commas, <laughs> But they'd still need to beat the West Indies 2-0 to confirm it. Okay, so two wins in Australia for South Africa. 2-0 win against West Indies in the spring, and they'll be in. Um, if they get whitewashed in Australia, they get beat 3-0 in Australia, then it's curtains for South Africa. So that's what's on that series. India are currently in the midst of a test match against Bangladesh that they're almost certainly going to win. That would be part one of their six-part march to the final if they win five of the six I'm doing really well here Brilliant. if they win five of the six including the current game against Bangladesh then they are almost certainly there if they win six out of six they're definitely there remember four of these six games are against Australia in a showdown in the spring Sri Lanka what a story that would be they are still in the mix Chris Silver with Sri Lanka Chris sorry Frank Lampard's Sri Lanka yeah Chris Silver with Sri Lanka uh they're, they're outside bets, but they can still just about pull it off if they beat New Zealand 2-0 in New Zealand. Big, big ask. But then they did go to South Africa a couple of years ago, didn't they? The Pereira series. And if they get a 2-0 win in South Africa and Australia lose a game against South Africa and India don't win all of their games, then Sri Lanka are in the final. Wow. So they've just got to go to South Africa. Sorry, go to New Zealand. Nick a 2-0 and hope that other results go their way. And it's not inconceivable that 
New Zealand, no, India don't what, win at all. What's the Kevin Keegan line? They've got to go to Borough and They've get something. They've still got to go to Middlesbrough <laughs> and get <laughs> something, right? Um, excellent. So look, look that there was you brilliant. go. That was surprisingly clear. That was it really, was kind really of good. Peter Snow swingometer vibes there. <laughs> I think we should get I, I feel exhausted. It's like watching the big short. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, mate. Cheers. Do you, do, so next question. Do you think single... He hasn't got anything else. Don't, don't push for a second. No, the, the, <laughs> do, do you think a single test cricketer knows any of that? No. No. And I wonder how many care. Do you, do you reckon someone has or said... Think, or think about it. <laughs> yeah. I was wondering, do you reckon there's been an England player this week who's gone like, what do, what do we need for the World Test Championship? Not knowing uh, that they're... Ollie Pope. <laughs> I reckon Ollie Pope said that. Well, the thing is, I know it goes completely against the logic of having a World Test Championship in the first place, but I asked someone, who would you want to see in the World Test Championship final? Mm. And none of the names that were mentioned came up in that. Um, oh, really? Yeah. Wow. So. Well, as Phil mentioned, Bangladesh are playing India at the moment and India are going to win that one. Interesting thing from the final ODI there, Ishan Kishan scored the fastest ever ODI double hundred, um, putting a bit more pressure on Shikha Darwan's spot in the side for the World Cup next year. Phil, what is your moment of the week? Oh, just very, very briefly. I went up to Lancashire, went up to Old Trafford on Monday night uh, to do a panel chat discussion thing with Paul Allett and Scott Reid, the BBC Lanks commentator and Lizzie Ammon, the Times reporter, uh, for their members, for their members Christmas do. So, you know, it was it was crackers and stuffing and all the rest of it. Uh and it was six hundred people in the in the point. Quite a big gig. Quite a big gig. Uh and yeah, we had a nice chat, you know. But it was it was lovely because it reminds you of the groundswell of of People care. People who really do yeah. care very deeply about this thing that we sometimes wax on about on a Tuesday morning and wonder if we're speaking into the void. Well, we're not because it's it retains great value and, and importance to people's lives. And it was nice to kind of be reminded of that on a Monday night. Coming back on the Tuesday was tricky. Uh, booked my train, ended up getting on a coach, took me seven hours. Um, up the workers, don't get me wrong, up the workers. But that was a tough one to get home from. Mm. Um, Joe, there's a new magazine out today other than the root interview what was in it loads of good stuff um i was going to start with because i know i don't want to say our listeners are geeks that would be a bad thing but you know that there are uh the cricketing intelligentsia quite right well done who listen to us so we've done a quiz of the year in this magazine which is bloody hard (laughs) possibly (laughs) too hard um but i think a lot of our listeners might enjoy it uh you can also win joe root's bat wow Uh, and second prize is a load of kit from pro direct yep so some good prizes there. Uh, it's a fun quiz. And also, it's not one of those ones that I don't think anyone's going to get 100% here. I'd be amazed if they do. So even if you don't know a few, doesn't mean you're out there running. Stick with it. Mm. I, I reckon 40% results and you're in. You're I, in think, I think you gave me this quiz a couple of weeks ago and it is so difficult. <laughs> it is so, so difficult. It's worth it alone for uh, for Jim Wallace's, uh who said it Elon Musk or Kevin Peterson yes. which is probably the best thing he's done for us in the two years he's been with us so far and um, that, that's not a reflection on what he's done previously it's just how good this quiz is surprisingly hard just on that did you see what Kevin Peterson tweeted I think either this morning or yesterday but that could have gone straight into the is it Peterson it's Musk it's marvellous it was um, Qatar, Saudi and Dubai in a few days the Middle East is thriving economically stable and growing fast safe and secure education <laughs> great and sunshine where everyone is smiling I can see why so many people have moved and are considering leaving Europe to live here hashtag the place to be Peterson or Musk hashtag sponsored ad as well I mean what quite possibly <laughs> allegedly um so that definitely go and check that out. Um, it feels like a long time ago now, but we've got 22 reasons why 
England won the T20 World Cup. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had to do it, Joe. We did, and it's good. It's, it's good. It just it feels like this, you know cricket moves on quick. Um, and connected to that, Mel Farrell uh, has done a really good interview with Matthew Mott, England's white ball coach. Uh, which, in amongst it, he, he says he thinks ODI should be cut down to forty overs, men's and women's, uh, after the next World Cup. Uh, and there's some interesting stuff in there about the kind of dynamic of the England dressing room as, as he sees it, as, a, as an Aussie coming in and witnessing it firsthand. Uh, I spoke to Munir Ali, Moen's dad, about uh, his kind of remarkable story, how he got to where he has done. His dad has played a pretty big role in that, I think it's fair to say, from, uh, from well, According piece. to his dad? <laughs> well, according to according to his dad, also according to Moen, in, in in fairness, but um, it's an amazing story. Yeah, Joe. Talk, talk, yeah talking true. about all about kind of sacrificing stuff for your kids. Uh, yeah, it's, it's it's another level, really. Um, the, so. the, the line that comes out, Munir says to Moen, "Give me two years of your life, and you can have the rest. And if after those two years we haven't cracked it, then fine, we shake hands. But give me two years, you know, no going out, no mates, no girlfriends, no nothing, just two years." Uh, and they practice what moon, morning, noon, and night, and obviously the the rest is history. But it's an amazing story. Yeah, so he was he was a psychiatric nurse at the local hospital, but couldn't find time to do that and the night shifts and take all his kids to their cricket. So he quit being a nurse to focus uh, almost exclusively on ferrying his kids. Because obviously Kadir Moen's older brother also played county cricket, and there's a younger brother who played a bit for Warwickshire Academy. Uh, and to raise funds to do that, he sold chickens door to door in the local neighbourhood. Uh, quitting his profession so it's it's a yeah he's a he's a fascinating boat to speak to um other stuff in there we've got taha we still let him write for us even though he, he left uh he's done a piece on Rian Ahmed and what his uh kind of stratospheric rise says about the state of english spin bowling uh got liam plunkett's cricket life spoke to me about the, the highs and lows of his career Bruce Talbot has done a really good piece on on Sussex and what's going on there. It's a bit of a mess of a county in, in lots of ways. Uh, he knows that county inside out. So he's kind of spoken to the chairman. Um, you know, it's a kind of hopeful piece, but also acknowledging that it's just been a mess of a, of a couple of years. Lots of players leaving. Uh, Katia has done a piece for us on John Lewis's appointment as England women coach. And all the columnists are great. As usual, we've got Alan, Adam Collins is back for the Aussie summer we asked him, is Australia falling out of love with its men's cricket team? And, and he's responded. He's basically written a response to that, um, looking at the kind of culture war that is afflicting Australian cricket, largely as a result of Justin Langer's departure and, and the way that's viewed. And the fact that and Pat, Pat Cummins, Cummins appears to be too woke. Yeah, Pat Cummins is too, is too woke to be Australian cricket captain. <laughs> or is he? I mean, it, it's, it's more nuanced than that. But that's, that's what um, Colo's looking at. Um, Phil, anything else that I haven't asked? Quite a lot of it, isn't it? Really? Yeah, there's quite a lot. That'll probably do. Matt Parkinson is excellent on um, how to bowl with a white ball, basically, uh, and the psychology of it as well. This is the coaching section. This is the coaching people section. Can which, get in which, touch with indeed. Get, yeah. yeah, echo that point again and again. Whatever your problems, whatever your queries, whatever kinks in your action that you can't quite figure out, please do write in. We, we'll take them to our our band of coaches and see where it gets you. Uh, but there's, there's, there's a real good range in this one. The Hour That Changed Graham Napier's Life is a oh, beautiful a interview one. on the final page done by by Wallace, by Jimmy Wallace as well. So yeah, it's good. It's, it's nice. 
Nice one. Well, as ever, you can get the magazine at wisdom.com forward slash shop. Um, that is the end of the show. Slightly longer than the one we did last Thursday. Uh, cheers, Phil. Cheers, Joe. Cheers, Katia. This cheers, has been Ringo. the Wisdom Cricket Weekly podcast. We'll be back after the third and final Pakistan England test. Podcast Network.